The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, please turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 5. Today's bittersweet because uh, we are ending our series in 1 John. I've had a great time in it. Um, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible, and I know, you know I've ruined all my credibility saying that because I say they're all my favorite, but 1 John really uh, has impacted me, changed me, shaped me as a man of God, uh, maybe more than any other book of the Bible. Uh, I have a great appreciation for John, its author. Uh, we have... We've named this series Up Close and Personal, um, and maybe you've been here for all the series, and so you, know, you could come rattle this off, but just for the sake of somebody that may not have been, we want you to know why it is we thought this was a fitting name for a study of the book of First John. It really has a lot to do with John the author, so there's two parts of that. Uh, John was one of what is often called the inner three of Jesus' disciples, right? So there was Peter, James, and John. These three guys were invited in to see miracles that other people didn't see. They were invited up on the mount to see Jesus be transfigured. Uh, Jesus had uh, many followers. He had 12 followers, but then he had these three guys who were his closest friends and confidants, the guys he spent the most time with and sowed the most time into, and uh, John was one of those guys. And so John had an up-close and personal relationship with King Jesus, and so uh, as I've said before, that doesn't make what he wrote more important than other authors of Scripture. However, it just makes my ears perk up. It makes me want to pay attention. When John's emphasizing something, his relationship to the Master, it, it makes me want to pay attention. What is it that he thinks is important? And we see over and over again uh, the, the theme of loving God and loving people being brought up in John's writing. And I think that's a direct... Um, it's a direct... Result, that was the word I was looking for. I knew it was an R word, it was evading, it was just out of my reach. Okay, that's the direct result of his connection to King Jesus, his emphasis on loving God and loving people. And so um, that is part of why we called it Up Close and Personal. Secondly, we see that John, in the way that he writes to these people that he's called to shepherd, he's just got such a beautiful shepherd's heart about him. He's all through the letter. He's referring to these people as uh, his beloved, as little children. Um, you can see he's just got such a fatherly tone in the way that he thinks about and cares for the people that God's entrusted to him. And uh, I just think that's a great, absolutely great example for anybody uh, that's called to be a leader among God's people. Um, it's, it's not about just gaining or exerting influence. It's about really loving with a father's heart uh, people that God entrusts. And so uh, I just really appreciate John and uh, We'll continue now. Uh, we're in 1 John 5, so we're going to take the second half of the chapter. So that's verses 13 through 21. Um, and we'll go ahead and read those now. So we're 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 13 and read through verse 21. Okay? Let's do that together. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit Sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one 
who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourself from idols. Amen. Uh, in verse 13, we see that uh, John continues in his normal fashion. He's famous for this in his writings. He's plainly stating the purpose of his writing. John doesn't want anybody to be confused about why it is he's written this letter. Uh, and he also he told us in the book of John, if you were here for Easter, you'll remember this. He said that the reason he wrote the book of John, the gospel of John, the account of Jesus' uh, birth, life, death, and glorious resurrection, the reason he did that, he made it plain. He said, I wrote these things so that you may believe. And here he's telling us that uh, the primary motive for the book of 1 John is to assure those of us who have put our faith in Jesus and his finished work that we have eternal life. The primary motive for writing this book, 1 John, so it's important to know that. That helps us. It gives us a lens with which to view the scriptures. He wants to assure those who have put faith in Christ that they have eternal life. So for the Christian, we read John's words about loving God and loving people and obeying God's great commandments to selflessly love him and others, and we are filled with joy, and we are filled with affirmation as we bear witness with those truths. See, for, for the Christian to read these scriptures, it fills them with joy, excitement, anticipation at going and obeying what it is uh, that is told to us. And for the Christian, we are excited about obeying God and exhilarated at the thought of being a part of the mission of rescuing mankind from sin and death. And so John, in writing this, he's, he's giving us all these characteristics of what it is when you follow Jesus. And for the Christian, as you read that, it should be, it should be a continual affirmation of the things that you already experience, the things that cause you to tick, the things that are the greatest source of joy to you. Obeying God should be exciting for the Christian. And it should, as we realize that totally counter to everything that's natural, I'm excited to surrender and obey to the God of the universe it should bring to me joy and excitement. It should affirm in me that, yes, indeed, I have received eternal life. Now, one of the tactics of the enemy is to get God's people to constantly question their own salvation. This is part of what John is warring against in writing these scriptures. Uh, and one of the ways that we can be sure that we are indeed uh, Christians and, and followers of Jesus is to read the word. Because as we read the truths of the scriptures, our affections are stirred, and we relate to what's being given as characteristics of true followers of Jesus. So a lot of times what happens as you're reading the Word as a Christian, whether it's the book of 1 John or it's somewhere else in the Scriptures, as commands are being given to those who follow Jesus, as, uh, as, we're being, as what's being laid out for us is a picture of what it looks like to follow Him, instead of that being constantly cutting across the grain, instead of that constantly being something that's frustrating to us or something that looks like it's going to be a bummer, uh, we look with excitement at what it is God calls us to do. And that's not natural. That's why Christians are called a peculiar people. Who else enjoys or looks forward to living a selfless life not focused on themselves? That's not fun, nor is it normal. That's what makes us stand apart. That's why the book of John chapter 13 tells us the way we will be known, the way we will stand out to the world, the most evangelistic characteristic of God's people is our love one for the other. And we've done a lot of work with that word. We know that it's not just this 
affection or positive feeling or it's not the googly feeling you get when you pet a cute puppy. That's not what love is, right? Love is defined. Its characteristics are embodied most beautifully, perfectly, and vibrantly in the cross of Christ. What do you see happening at Jesus' cross? You see selflessness of a caliber you never see anywhere else in all of time and all the universe. You see sacrifice of a caliber that you'll not see anywhere else. You see a, a king, a creator, dying for rebels and wretches that are the ones that put him there. You see the most beautiful picture of sacrifice, and, and that is First John continually keeps calling us back to understanding this is the definition of love. I think John had prophetic foresight knowing that not only in his day was the word love tainted, was the understanding of what love is, had it been shattered by, by flesh and by just the lies of the devil, but today, maybe more than ever, the word love has been convoluted, it's been perverted, and it's been stolen away from its true and beautiful meaning. God loves us. And that's one of the most deep things you could ever hear, and the fact that he loves us calls us to love him. He proved that he loves us. By sending King Jesus to the cross. And in that we see, we understand our finite, um, imperfect, just fleshly mind. The best chance we have to even understand what love is. To get on the level of God who is love. To try to understand the depth of that. Is to stare full face at the beautiful cross. We'll not understand love looking anywhere else. It is only in Jesus and his finished work that we see it. And so then what we do is we seek to walk after and emulate that. Not that we be nailed to a tree, but that every day we look to lay down what is best for us, what's most convenient for us, what maybe would, would bring us the most pleasure to give those things to another. We serve others more than we serve ourselves. The beauty is that as you walk with God's people, as you live in community, as you uh, live life amongst other Christians and, and actually operate as a family that God calls us to, what we see is if I put down my needs as less important and make yours more so, and you do the same for me, everybody's needs still get met, and God is glorified. Because what is totally unnatural is happening. People look at that picture and they see, man, no, nobody else does that. Nobody else lives selflessly. I mean, out here, it's a, it, you guys know what I'm talking about. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, right? I'm going to get mine and forget about you. If I've got to step on you to get there, I'll do that. That's not how we live. We've set all that aside. It's not about me. It's about loving Jesus and serving him by serving you. Amen. To God be the glory. Amen. Amen. You excited about that or you bummed out? That helps us understand. It helps us. Man, if you, if you get excited thinking about serving people, loving people more than you love yourself, man, you can. this is what John wanted to do, build confidence in you. Don't sit around letting the devil talk to you about whether or not you're a Christian, man. If you love God and love people and you're excited about what that means, so you're excited about laying your life down for a mission much bigger than yourself, for letting people know this beautiful gospel message. If you're excited about your life not being about you, getting what you can get and forget everybody else, but you're excited about pouring yourself out for the, the ultimate mission of changing eternities and letting people know there's hope in Christ, if that excites you, there's a real good chance you belong to Jesus. Eternal life rests inside of you. And that's a joyous thing. What then can come give me a bad day? Go ahead and try to get me off of the joy of the Lord when I understand God is my king. That's not changing. I'm saved by grace through faith. That's not changing. What really at the end of the day? Come what may. I have joy. I'm not saying I don't have a hard day. I'm not saying emotions don't exist. I'm not saying that being a Christian means I'm a robot, you know, just perma-joy. 
and I'm, and I'm dishonest about how I feel, but the point is, ultimately, down on the deep part of the inside of me, you, you can't rock me, you can't change me, you can't move me. I belong to the king, and he wins. I'm on his team. I'm winning. Victory, right? That's the language we see here. It's beautiful. Okay. Uh, Though John's primary intention was to encourage the believer that they indeed have eternal life, reading these truths can also have a painful but beneficial opposite effect. Let me just say this first. Some of you don't believe that painful and beneficial can belong in the same sentence. Um, You're wrong. I love you, but you're wrong. Uh, Sometimes a good sting from the scriptures is the best thing for us. Sometimes a difficult situation in life, walking through that with the help and the grace of God, is the only way you'll be able to grow. Do you hear what I said? That's important because some of you are going to get bummed out next week when something hard happens and you know, you're going to get a flat tire or you know, something's going to happen and, and it could be to that little bit of a level there and, and you're going to start questioning whether God loves you and he's real. I got a flat tire and I'm late. God, where are you? Right? Just come on, get out, change the tire. It's all right and sing a praise song while you're doing it. Hallelujah. Amazing grace. I'm going to get this tire on. Listen, we don't think right about suffering and struggling, and sometimes we don't think right about difficulty. The reality is, um, just because we experience resistance does not mean that God's abandoned us. Oftentimes, uh, he's right there with us. If we'll trust him and walk with him, he's always there with us in the midst of that trial and difficulty. That's why we don't freak out. I am fully unequipped, unqualified, and unprepared to handle much of the difficulty that comes my way. I don't have what it takes, but he does, and he's with me, so we keep on marching, and we win, and he looks good, right? My inadequacy makes him look better, because it's not hard for people to look at me and see, that guy's probably not got what it takes, whether it be smarts, whatever it is, bottom line, God has it. God has it, and he puts me in situations that are way bigger than I can handle, And you can get mad about that, upset about that, think that that means he's not there. Surely God wouldn't have led me here. Or you could say, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you. And if me being able to struggle through this brings glory to you, then hallelujah. Let it sting. I don't care. I'm more interested in his glory than I am my comfort. Amen? That was a good time to amen right there. Amen. If you can amen that, you can also probably be assured that you belong to Jesus. Let me... (laughs) Woo! Bring it on. Okay. Um, But reading these truths, it can have the opposite effect, uh, but beneficial, um, because the reality is you could falsely believe that showing up to a service once in a while uh, and throwing God a tip into the offering uh, and living a generally moral life, or at least a better life than some people you know, uh, that that could mean you have eternal life. We could believe the wrong thing. These scriptures don't let us do that. Because John wants to make it clear in verse 12, right above where we started today, in verse 13, he tells us that he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life, right? We talked about that. This is probably the most unpopular thing I could say in the culture today, and yet I'm called to say it loud and as often as I can. There is one way. There is one way to God the Father. There is one way to know that we have eternal life. And it's not that I live a generally good or moral life based on my subjective understanding of what that means. It is that I fully and completely understand I'm a helpless sinner and what I need is to put trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
that I stand apart from God as a sinner with a chasm between us. I could not have no hope of bridging myself that Jesus came and by being born of a virgin, living a perfect life in my place, then dying in my place for my sins, that he built a bridge that I then could get to God the Father. I could have never done it myself. That I was dead in my sins, but he came and made me alive. That is the way we know we have eternal life. It's not that we're doing better than somebody else that, that we know on our street. It's not that we can find someone a little nastier or a little dirtier than us, and so we're, we feel justified. That, that's not it. It has everything to do with Jesus. It really has nothing to do with what we do or don't do. He who has the Son, and, and by that mean, he means by faith, and so how that works is we know that we know what the beautiful gospel tells us, that the gospel, it's comprised of both bad news and good news, that the gospel is that all of us are separated from God by our sin, that none of us are perfect. That's, that's probably the easiest part of the gospel to preach uh, to people that are sane. Most people are vibrantly aware they're not perfect. And so once you let them know that, and you let them know that God is perfect, and what's required to be in relationship with a holy and perfect God is perfection, that is super, super bad news because then all of us are out, right? Without Jesus, we're all out. That's why the good news is so sweet. That's why it's worthy of the laying down of all of my life for the preaching of this message, because it's the only hope for all of mankind. We're all in trouble. We're all imperfect. We're all separated from God, but Jesus came. I mean, to just leave somebody at the end with the bad news, you're imperfect, God's perfect. To be with him, you gotta be perfect. You can't fix it. That'd be a bad deal, right? And part of the problem is most people don't even understand that part in our culture. That what's required to be in relationship with a perfect God is not that you do better than somebody else you know, but to be perfect. That's bad. Super bad. I'm, I'm out. I know that. That's why Jesus had to come. He had to come and fix the problem. He had to come and live a perfect life, and then somehow God saw fit to let him die in our place for our sins, that he would shed his blood, and that God would then count his perfection and righteousness to our account. That he would trade all of our wretchedness and our rebellion and our sin and our filthiness for his goodness and righteousness and love and joy and peace. It's a good message, man. This is a good life to live. There's nothing more exciting than being a part of spreading that good word to as many people as possible. It's the best way to spend breath. A lot of things you can let run out of your mouth. Nothing more beautiful or sweet than the gospel. And then John, he gives us all these characteristics of what Christians are like, and so we read those things, and like a mirror, the Word shows us how we compare, and so that's part of what he's doing in uh, 1 John 4, 7 through 21, and then he continues in the first part of 1 John 5. He's, he's giving you all these things. He's showing you that those that are Christians, that they, they obey God's commandments, and that they understand that this is the way that they love him and express that love most perfectly. And so he's giving us all those things, and so what that allows us to do is like a mirror. We're, we're reading those words, and we can see how is it do I stack up to that, and one of two things will happen. Either we will be encouraged by the fact that as unnatural as it is, what I'm reading there brings joy to me, that obeying God instead of obeying myself, that worshiping God instead of worshiping myself or some other idol, these things bring joy to me, and, and the fact that I can obey God by God's grace, it, it, makes me, it makes me happy, and it makes me full of excitement, that, John tells us, that should let us know. Something's different about you. Something's changed. You can't be a dead man. You can't be a slave to sin anymore. Something's, something's different in you. And, and, 
And sometimes in the midst of those hard days, the last thing you have to grip hold to is that assurance right there. And we as Christians should be able to conjure praise and gratitude and adoration for the God of the universe if a day is so bad, but all we have left is this assurance that John tries to give us in the writing of this book, that we have eternal life. If you've got eternal life, you have reason for celebration, dear one. I don't care what else has fallen apart, what's shaken down, what's burnt down, what's gone wrong. To belong to him, to have eternal life, to be assured that I belong to Jesus. I have joy. Again, this doesn't mean we're fake. It doesn't mean that we never struggle. It just means that all the way down to the worst that could happen, all the way down to here comes death knocking at my door, I can sing, oh death where is your victory, death where is your sting, come. I can't lose. The Christian can't lose. Are you happy about that? I like winning. You like winning? I'm a bad sport. And and, and I get to be on this one. I'm winning because Jesus is winning. And I haven't played basketball in years because I get a bad attitude and I start fouling people. And I don't make Jesus look good when I play basketball. And you know what? I'm getting better at that. I'm walking through a process of sanctification. If you want to put me on your prayer list, you can pray about that. Pastor Vince's bad attitude in competitive sports, right? Um, but you know what? On this deal, I, don't, I, don't, I can just be smug and laugh in the devil's face as I win all the way. Victory is mine because victory is his. Amen. We can all do better by God's grace. As we read these descriptions by John of what love looks like, the reality is we all fall short, right? Um, By a lot. Um, (laughs) So we can all do better by God's grace, but if if we read 1 John and and you say, you know, you say that you realize that, you say to yourself, you read what this looks like to be a Christian, and you say, you know what, I can really do better at this, but I'm excited about growing by God's grace for his glory. If that's the kind of response you have, then I want you to not waste one more second of your life arguing with the devil about whether or not you're saved. I had a talk with a brother this week. He struggled with sin, and and, and you could see in his eyes that question of, do I belong to Jesus? And so I asked him. This is the question I'll ask him. And it's a question I'd ask you, and I'd encourage you to ask someone else struggling with this. What do you want? What do you want more than anything else? Look down into your heart. What do you desire more than anything? If the answer is to serve God and obey him, it doesn't matter that you've fallen. It doesn't matter that you've struggled. It doesn't matter that you've failed. That's called life. If what you want more than anything is to serve and obey him, you have eternal life. Victory is yours. Joy is yours. And you're on the right team. So pick up and keep moving. And quit sitting there wallowing in self-pity, arguing with the devil who's nothing but a liar. Okay? You belong to Jesus. Amen. If that's the kind of thing you say, then you're a part of God's redemption family and eternal life is yours. Now, if you read those same words, these words of John, and it talks about obeying God, obeying his commands by loving him and loving people, and that sounds like a drag to you, and it sounds like a huge bummer, then I would encourage you to let Jesus crush that prideful heart of stone in your chest and let him replace it with a heart of flesh. You need to get saved. That's what I'm saying. You should surrender to Jesus today. If obeying Jesus looks like nothing but the worst thing you've ever seen, you're probably not a Christian. I would just invite you today, please become one. Please believe what it is John uh, pours over in these scriptures, what he works so hard to convince us of, 
uh, in writing these books that Jesus is the Son of God. He wasn't just some moral teacher. He didn't just do nice things. He didn't leave us that option. He said stuff like, I am. He said stuff like, before Abraham, I was here. He didn't leave us the option to say he was just a good guy that did some cool stuff. He's either God in the flesh or he's a liar. And what John says is we need to believe. He says earlier in 1 John 5, we either believe the testimony of the Son of God or we call God a liar. These are the two options. I hate to take away that nice neutral ground where you can kind of do what you want and, and pay lip service to God, but I don't know if I totally believe everything. Here's the bottom line. You don't have that option. I love you, but you don't. We either believe God's word and the testimony about his son, Jesus Christ, or we call God a liar. There are only two options. Will you stand in pride and call God a liar? Will that, that be the position you take, or will you submit yourself to God and his word and every command he would give, believing that every command he gives us is not because he's, he's tyrannical and a control freak, but that he's a God that loves us, and everything he asks us not to do is for our good, and everything he asks us to do is for our good. If you would just believe that, dear ones, it would be so much easier for you to obey him. So much of your struggle to be obedient to the God that loves you is because you're not sure if he loves you. You're not sure if you totally buy that he could be a perfect father. Some of you, that's because you had a dad that didn't do a good job exhibiting what a father is. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that's the case. But everything your dad didn't do, every promise your dad didn't keep, God will do the exact opposite. He will not fail you. He will not lie to you. He'll only love you and do good towards you. Even sometimes that good towards you is leading you through difficulty. You see that? You understand that? If I do nothing else but preach that for the rest of my life and die, if I can get some Christians to believe that just because you're struggling doesn't mean God has abandoned you, I'll, I'll have done something worth doing. Amen? That was just verse 13. We're in trouble. <laughs> that was the first one. Okay, let's go. Let's get to work. You guys quit distracting me. All right, serious business now. All right, verse 14 and 15. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. This is not going to be fast either. Okay, a lot of people quote this verse wrong, okay? Uh, they only remember the if we ask anything, he hears us part, see? Uh, that's a problem. And then they go on and they say, well, you know, if... if if we ask anything, he hears us, and if we, if we know he hears us, then we know we have our requests. You know, then, then what happens is like, well, I've seen Aladdin, you know, I know how that works, so then they start throwing their wishes up to God, and you know, like an indentured genie in a bottle, God's got to grant all those requests, because the Bible said, God hears me, and, and, he'll, and he'll give me my requests. Here's the problem. Um, they, they, miss, they miss a few words. <laughs> uh, here's what it actually says. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will. According to his will. And so, you know, that's why it doesn't work when we start the whole uh, treating God like a Latin's genie. You know, we start, you know, God, I want a, I want a gold watch so big that I have to hire someone to hold my arm up. And, you know, I want, a, I want a car so expensive and so flashy that, you know, I, I'm turning heads everywhere I go. I get a bunch of attention. And you know, I want a house so big that i got to drop breadcrumbs behind me everywhere I go just to find my way back from where I was. Um, this, this kind of stuff, that's, that's not what's being talked about here. Um, and some of you are upset because I'm saying that, because you believe lies. <laughs> Woo, that was fun, wasn't it? Um, and so some of you right now, you want to quote some verses at me, some proof text to prove me how, that, it's wrong, you know, that what I'm saying is wrong and... Uh, 
and you want to prove to me that it's not wrong for you to ask God for anything that pops into your sweet little head, um, and you'll say things like me, well, you know what? You know what, buddy? God will give me the desires of my heart. So you can take all that, all that mean stuff you're saying somewhere else. God will give me the desires of my heart. And so if that means, you know, I want to ask him for a flying, flying unicorn that poops money, I can do that. That's, if, I, if I have a desire in my heart, God said he'll give them to me, and God's true to his word. And so, mm, you know, I win, you lose. Um, the only limit to what I can pray for is what I desire. No. Uh, I like that verse too. Uh, it's Psalm 37, 4. Um, and you should go read it again. Because uh, the problem is that that's a half-cocked and half-quoted verse. Uh, it doesn't just say he's going to give you the desires of your heart. It says, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. And here's the thing. Delighting yourself in the Lord is not serving him because someone told you he'll give you stuff. Delighting yourself in the Lord is laying all of your affection and all of your attention and all of your allegiance at his feet because of what he's already gave. That's delighting yourself in the Lord. That the greatest source of joy in all of your life is the fact that you belong to him. And when you delight yourself in the Lord, uh, it changes the way you pray. When you delight yourself in the Lord, um, your desires change from, from big gold watches and, and, and big houses and, and all the other stuff that seems to drive much of the culture around us. It changes to you wanting more than anything else just his will to be done because you, you trust that that's so much better than anything you could conjure up with your imagination. And so, yeah, God does promise to, to answer prayers, but you'll find that there's, there's conditions on it. Again, not just to restrict you because, you know, God doesn't want you to wish your own personal Disneyland into existence by his power. Um, it's because ultimately what's best for you is, is oftentimes not the first thing you think of. And he does know what's best for us. The key here is the forgotten phrase, according to his will. And I'm going to tell you guys something. The longer I walk with God, the shorter my prayers get. Sometimes people think in reverse that the more holy you get, the longer you, know, the longer you can pray. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong against you know, being in a quiet time with the Lord for a long time and praying. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm, I'm just telling you that in general, if I'm struggling or I know somebody that's struggling and, and this situation comes to my mind, um, more and more my prayers sound something like, Lord, please just have your way. Lord, please have your way as it pertains to that person. Please have your way as it pertains to that situation. Because as a younger man, I used to give God long lists of things I'd like to see happen. God, please help that person, heal that person. Please restore them, God. Please give them the, the joy that only comes in serving you. And I would, I'd give God all this stuff. And then I, I begin to realize, like, God really is so much smarter than me. And he's so much better at knowing what each man or woman needs. And there's nothing wrong in me expressing desires for good things for a brother or sister if I'm praying for them, but the best thing I could ask for them is that God's will be done for them. Because what he desires for them uh, is just going to be so much far better than what I could think of. I'm just really, really convinced of that. The purest prayer possible is, Lord, your will be done, and that you mean it. And there's a difference. You can say that because you know that it's right, and you can say it because you are completely and totally reserved to the fact that if God's will is done, it'll be the best thing for you, even if it means something different than the picture in your head. It might not be the easy path, 
Serving God is not always the easy way, but it is always the best way. Our culture would tell you that those, that's, that's mutually exclusive, that the best way is always the easy way. Please hear me. That's not true. The best way is the best way. It's the God way. And sometimes it'll be the hard way. Oftentimes it will be. Because God is glorified when his children walk through difficulty by his grace. But even if we walk through difficulty, if we have joy the whole time, hallelujah. And the ultimate prize is still there. Victory in the end. Eternity with him. Can't move me. (laughs) You can't move me. I'm happy today. Amen. I wouldn't, you know, some of you are still holding on. Some of you have been um, raised in certain traditions that uh, you have not liked anything I've said about prayer. I just want to remind you that Jesus himself prayed this way in the garden. Jesus said to Father, to the Father, he said, um, Lord, if there be any other way. So clearly, like Jesus, anticipating the difficulty of the cross, he's struggling with that in a real way. This, this shows us the humanity of Jesus. Some of us get messed up and we think, well, Jesus living that perfect life, that was a result of him being the God-man, and it doesn't really apply to me. That him living by the power of the Holy Spirit, it was different. Do you understand? Jesus struggled mightily looking forward to the cross. Sweat drops of blood. Got to the point where Jesus is Jesus, knows the plan, knows what he's there for, but is so vexed by the upcoming of crucifixion and, 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 and the separation that he's going to experience from God the Father, knowing that that's coming. He's like, he comes right up to it. It's almost like, so, some of you, um, you stand in line for a roller coaster or, or you know, I, I saw this happen. I went skydiving one time and I saw these people that were super pumped, chest bumping each other on the ground. We're going to do this, right? They get up in the plane, open the door, they look down and it's like, they're scooting to the back, right? Like, they get right up to the, the moment of truth, and it's like, oh, I'm not sure. Um, like, like Jesus got up to that, that point where it's imminent. His death and his sacrifice and his separation from God is, is imminent, and, and, and he's vexed about it. He has great anxiety. He's, he, he goes to the point where he's like, Father, is there another way? If there's another way, please. But he finishes like this. Nevertheless, even though, Lord, right now, God, Father, what I want is to not do this. Nevertheless, your will be done. If Jesus prayed that way, surely it's right for us. Amen? Amen. It's not wrong for you to ask God for something that's not directly promised in his word, but just remember this. You're not entitled to anything. And God deserves our love and gratitude for eternity if he never did another thing for us. Do you believe that? You, you got motivation to serve him, love him, and lay down your life for him. The rest of your life, as many more breaths as he give you, if he did nothing else for you, other than what he's already done. And by that, I mean namely the cross. If he did nothing else, and yet he will. He will answer prayers. He does bless us. He provides for us. He leads us and guides us. Loves us. Speaks to us. It's wonderful. It's not hard to worship this God. Um. I talked to a woman, uh, I mentioned that we did the, the outreach at the fireworks display, and um, I, I, I talked to a couple of ladies for a moment. Um, it, it was funny because I, I, had, uh, I had not felt well early in the day, and so I hadn't eaten, and uh, finally got to the point where I felt like I could eat something, so I went over to the pizza truck. Did anybody eat some of that pizza, man, at the Norwood Fireworks, the red, white, and blue? I'm telling you what, it was legit. You should check that out. <laughs> I'm off course. Um, got my piece of pizza, right, and... Um, you know, I had moved through the crowd. Not, nobody had said much to me thus far. And uh, 
you know, I grab the piece of pizza and like it's, it's heading from my mouth and, you know, the anticipation, excitement is there. And, and this lady goes, oh, hey, you're a pastor? I'm like, right. So, you know, I got a test about whether or not I was going to be selfless and have this conversation hungry. So I did. I put my pizza down. So we'll pat on the back. Um, I thought about going, yes, I'll be back in five minutes and hiding on the other side of the truck and just <laughs> stuffing it in my face. But I thought, well, I don't know, Lord, what you're doing. So I sat down and started talking to this lady. And um, the, the conversation started with, <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, the conversation started with, so you're a pastor, huh? Yeah, and she knew that because I had prayed over the, the fireworks thing. I, I was up on the stage for a minute, and so she had noticed that. And, uh, and, I, and she said, uh, aren't you too young to be a pastor? And I said, well, um, probably. Uh, I said, how old do you think I am? And she said, uh, oh, I don't know, late 30s, early 40s. And so, uh, <laughs> and so I went home that night and put oil of a lay on my face and cried myself to sleep. Um, <laughs> contacted a few plastic surgeons in town. Apparently, we've got good ones here in Cincinnati. So I don't know what's going on here, but we're going to get it worked on. Um, so anyways, we moved on from there, and I still listened to her. I'm just trying to tell you how good of a Christian I am. Um, so no, uh, that, it, it didn't bother me. I'm lying. Okay, so we kept going and ended up talking to her, and ultimately, she ends up coming out and saying, um, you know, I don't know how, honestly, I can't remember up until the point where she said, well, I'm mad at God and Jesus right now. I said, okay, what for? And she told me uh, that her nephew was 30 and had died of AIDS and that she had uh, spent many days during that last portion of time in the hospital chapel asking God not to take him. And uh, then when he was really in a lot of pain and struggling, um, her prayer changes. She said, Lord, uh, if you're not going to let him stay, then please just take him peacefully. And he died that night. And the reason she was upset with the Lord is that he could answer, this is her perspective, uh, that he would answer that prayer but not the other prayers. That was where her, her mind was at. And so um, can I just encourage you that, you know, I know that... Uh, I'm pretty frank and direct when it comes to preaching the word in here, but in, in a situation like that when you're dealing with somebody's pain, people's perception is their reality. And so I didn't jump on her with 10 scriptures and tell her she was dumb for being mad at God. Now, ultimately, just me, you, and the fence post here, um, it's dumb to be mad at God. God's God, right? And God's good, but she didn't understand that. And so um, that's, that's a hard conversation to have. We're sitting on the curb at the fireworks, and this lady's crying. And she's mad at God, and so I'm trying to figure out how to deal with that. And uh, the Lord reminded me of a story, and if you've heard this before, forgive me, but this is one of the most pivotal moments in my life, and so it applies to a lot of how I end up ministering to other people. And so uh, this would be for the benefit of those of you who haven't heard it. Um, I, was, I was a young child. I was abused physically, um, real bad, sometimes worse times than others. And one of the, one of the uh, particularly violent times, uh, I was choked to the point where um, I was almost dead, and so when I woke up from that, I was about seven, uh, I remember kind of crawling from where I was at and, and being on my knees in my room, and I don't really understand even now why I knew to call out to God in anger because I didn't have any background, nobody taught me that much about God, maybe it was from TV, or I don't know why I had any sense that God even exists, but I remember as a seven-year-old kind of sitting there on my knees, shaking my fists at God and crying and asking him, why me? 
Why do none of the other kids at school get beat like this? Why do none of the other kids at school go through what I'm going through? They all seem happy, and i got to come home and deal with this. And uh, felt, you know, real upset with the Lord. And then uh, going on from there, I, I completely blocked that memory out. I forgot that that happened. So from age 7 to 16, I did not remember that event. And um, I met my bride, Natalie. We were down at... Uh, Camp Drygulch, we were both counselors at a kid's camp there, and um, one night, one of my buddies, you know, at night we would go around and pray for the kids, every kid in the bunk, it was really cool, um, and so one of his kids was, was crying, and he said, you know, what's going on, man, why are you crying, and uh, the kid said, um, my parents are getting divorced, and it's my fault, and one of the things that had happened um, is one of the times that uh, I'd got beat, the, the parent that did that, the other parent came in, and so they started fighting, and then the parent that beat me came in and said, we're getting divorced, and it's your fault, said that to me. And so I had to deal with that, you know, for, for years. And so this kid obviously misunderstood, as I did as a young child. Somehow he thought his parents getting a divorce was his fault. And so my buddy, his parents were still married. He had a pretty, you know, everybody has struggles, but had a pretty safe childhood and it was normal and so he was really struggling to relate to this kid and so we traded bunks and I took that kid and I took him outside and I sat with him I just put my arm around him and just loved on him and talked to him assured him there's no possible way uh, that your parents getting a divorce is your fault and was just loving on him and uh, those of you that know me know I'm not hyper spiritual and so there, there is no embellishment to this as I'm sitting there on that pavement God Almighty gave me a vision and reminded me, showed me me as a young child screaming on the floor, mad at God, asking why me? Why do I have to go through this? I saw that and simultaneously as he showed me that and reminded me of that event, I heard him speak to me and say, this is why. Because I was equipped in going through that difficulty to be able to minister to this young kid and many more for the rest of my life. And here's where I have to get to and here's where you have to get to. If, if it if I have to endure pain by his grace, if I have to walk through struggle by his grace, if what that ends up ultimately is something that ends up helping someone else and being for his glory, then I receive it. And I'm glad for it. And I told her, I told her that story. Um, I'm not sure how much she could relate to it. I'm not sure how much she got what I was saying. Uh, but my hope is that I planted a seed in her heart and that she no longer will be mad at God. I told her that from that day, I, I promise to you, from 16 years old to today and for the rest of my life, I've never, ever, ever questioned God again. There's no need to. I understand. My life's not mine. If, 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 he want, look, if he wanted to take my life today, if somehow in the grand scheme of things, he ended up with more glory because I died today, that's what I want. Are you there? That's, that's what we're called to. And for some of you, that might be hard to say. But that's where you begin to assess earthly attachments. You begin to assess what, where are my affections really at. His glory is my ultimate concern. Because he's good. He's worthy. He's worth that. Yes. Amen? Amen. 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 Okay. <clears throat> it's, it's also it's just a good example of... Um, no, nobody expects to go to the, the dang hometown fireworks display and have a talk like that. Just be ready wherever you are. That's, that's why walking in God's spirit and, and 
and paying attention to the people around you and, and being sensitive to the Holy Spirit really, really matters. You just have no idea who you might encounter. Um, let's look at verse 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, he shall ask and God will uh, for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there's a sin not leading to death. I'll tell you, um, Peter says uh, in, in one of his books that sometimes Paul's writings are hard to understand. I think John is given a run for his money here in 1 John 5. There's a couple sets of verses here that are a little bit hard to understand. Um, so there's a couple ways that people interpret this verse 16 and 17. This, uh, this death being spoken of, uh, some people would say that that's, that's physical death, like what happened perhaps in the, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. You remember that story in Acts? Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they have a piece of land, they sell it, and they keep back some of the money, but they decide because they want everyone to be proud of them, they're going to tell everyone, this is the whole price. Everything we got for the land, look at us, we're the best. Everyone be proud of our big offering. And so they walk in and Peter says, uh, Ananias, why have, you, uh, why have you come up with this lie in your heart? Why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? And uh, you've not lied to men, but to God. And, uh, and he drops dead right on the spot. Um, now, some of you, that just freaks you out. You don't know how to process that. And, and to be honest with you, um, you know, I'm not totally sure either. Was that an example God set that he knew would be put in the scriptures so we would understand, don't try to lie to God. It's a serious business. Um, is that something that could still happen today? I'm, I'm not totally sure. I'm just not going to chance it. <laughs> right? <laughs> let's just stay away from it as far as we can. Uh, let's just be honest with the Lord because he knows anyways. Um, let's, let's not be deceived. Um, some people believe this is a reference to spiritual death and that this, this sin leading to death here, it's a reference to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which even leads to its own set of um, uh, kind of arguments about what that actually is. Um, I believe that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is willful, continual rejection of Jesus Christ. Um, and so, whether this is talking about physical death or spiritual death, um, the bottom line is that he's saying here, you know, it's odd because he says that there's sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. So in the first part, he's, he's encouraging us to pray for those that are caught up in sin. Um, and it's funny that right after he says those verses, or he writes those verses that many of us have erroneously used for uh, getting a car, you know, that he hears me and, you know, here's my request and he's going to grant that request. Immediately after that, John starts talking about praying for somebody else, right? It's probably a pure prayer to care about somebody else's situation than our own. Um, this sin leading to death, if it be blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, as uh, some believe, then maybe there's there's no point left in praying for that person. They're too far gone. I know that's going to raise a lot of questions. We honestly don't have the time to deal with this in depth. I would encourage you to uh, study this out later. This would be a good topic to get together with some friends and, uh, and study out. Um, the reality is, either way, um, I honestly, I tend, I'll just tell you this, I tend towards it meaning physical death. Uh, as opposed to, to spiritual death, partially because he says if you see a brother um, committing this sin. So the reality is I think God can, 
take people home to be with him sometimes because, you know, perhaps they've ruined their witness to the point where they're no longer going to be any, any use for mission here on the earth, and as opposed to let them just continue, he brings them home. Um, there's no need to pray against that. It's in God's hands. Uh, that, to me, is the reading that makes the most sense. Um, however, you're welcome to disagree with that. That would be open hand because that is a bit of a confusing set of scriptures. But we have two options. Remember, every time we don't understand something as it pertains to God and his word, we can either doubt or worship. That's right. That was good. You guys did good. Um, we can either doubt or worship. I choose to worship. God's bigger than me, and I'm glad about it. I'm glad there's things, a part of his character and nature and the depth of his word that I don't understand. If I was as smart as God, why would I worship him? I'm not. There's a big, wide, far gap between me and him, and I'm real, real happy about it. He's bigger than me, stronger than me, smarter than me. He's God, and I'm not. All right. Uh, Verses 18 through 20. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Okay, you could read that, and um, if you weren't good at hermeneutics and understood the way we read the Bible, you could say, um, you know, we, we know that the one who's born of God, uh, know that, that no one who is born of God sins. You could say, okay, so what that means is, if you're a Christian, you should not sin ever. Clearly, from all of what we have in the scriptures, we know that that's not the case. The verb here being used, it gives a... It gives a connotation of continual sin, and you will see many warnings against that in the Bible, where you just continue to do what you want, regardless what it is the Holy Spirit's trying to speak to you, you just keep on doing that, that means serious trouble. That's what's being talked about here, that nobody who is born of God is just going to continue sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and rejecting the Holy Spirit, not caring what God says, disregarding His Word, that's not the way Christians act, okay? Okay. And he says uh, that we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 19. Again, that can be kind of a scary verse. Here's here's the deal. Uh, Book of Corinthians tells us that uh, the devil is God, little g of this world. That's a temporary deal. See, Adam in the beginning was given uh, authority to steward this planet. Adam effectively, in listening to Satan instead of listening to God, turned over his mantle of authority to the devil. That's going to be a, a temporary deal. We know in the end the devil loses, God wins. In the meantime, though, that is the reason why we see a world full of death and suffering and sickness and hardship is uh, right now the devil does have reign and run in this world. Uh, Sin is uh, not completely vanquished as it will be when Jesus is done with this whole thing. So that helps us in two ways. One, we look forward to the final hope knowing that everything that's been broken by sin will be fixed. That's our great hope. We look forward with anticipation to that day. But also it helps us to make sense of this world now. Because oftentimes, um, like, like my dear sister that was mad at God, oftentimes we mistakenly believe that because bad things happen, tragic things happen. I mean, there are unspeakably tragic things that happen in this world. The death of children. I mean, there's, there's terrible, unspeakable evils that happen. And sometimes what that leads people to is, is a, an idea that God is either not powerful or not loving, because if he was both of those things, these things couldn't happen. And I just need you to hear that that's not true. The full narrative of the scriptures shows us the reason why we see the tragic things we do is that the story's not done. But when it's done, God will win, and all those things that are broken will be set right, and every knee will bow and acknowledge his lordship. Okay? Amen. That felt good just saying. Makes me happy. Uh... 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Um, we know that Jesus has come. We know, his, we know that He is the truth. Uh, and we know that because of Him we have eternal life. This is our great hope and this is our great message. It's the most beautiful thing we have to share. The truth of the gospel. Verse 21, again, we see John's fatherly tone. He says, little children, guard yourself from idols. This can seem the way it's written as kind of an afterthought. He says all this other stuff and then ends with a sentence, little children, guard yourself from idols. Um, I would say it's congruent with everything else he's saying. I would say also that John, I don't know if John was aware of it, but I'm sure the Holy Spirit is aware that there's, a, there's studies that have been done that will that prove that you will remember more of the beginning of this sermon and the end of this sermon. Much of the middle will probably fuzz out. And so, um, except for those of you that are, you know, just voraciously taking notes because you're, you're so pumped about everything I'm saying, you're super Christians. The rest of you might forget some of what I said. Um, but you are more, pr- more prone to begin, remember the beginning and the end, and I think John put this right at the end, knowing that uh, the recency effect would, would take place. And as that letter was written in the church, it was intended to be or it was, as it was read in that church, it was intended to be read in, that people would hear last, little children, guard yourself from idols. Because it was important. So in that day, the classical sense of idol uh, would have held true much more than it does today. There were people then worshiping little statues made of silver or gold or wood. And so oftentimes we let ourselves off the hook um, because we think of the, the silly idolatry of men of that day. I can't believe that. Can you believe that? They worship little statues and stuff. How dumb could you be? Well, just listen to this quote from, uh, from John Stott. Uh, Some people are eaten up with selfish ambition for money, power, or fame. Others are obsessed with their work or with sports or television or are infatuated with a person or addicted to food or drugs or alcohol or sex. Both immorality and greed are forms of idolatry because they demand an allegiance that is due to God alone. So every idolater is a prisoner held in humiliating bondage. I would just encourage you, dear ones, don't let yourself off the hook because you don't have a little statue at home that you put food out for and worship in the classical sense. Uh, Satan's crafty. Many of us are bound and chained by idols we're not even aware of. Anything that garners more allegiance, affection, or attention from you than the Lord God is an idol. And we should, we should constantly assess ourselves for that. Not that we can make idol hunting into an idol, and so we don't want to make our whole relationship with God about trying to root out idols. Part of what the Holy Spirit does inside of us is brings those things to our understanding so that we can uh, crush them and, uh, and be rid of them. But uh, I would just, don't be quick to dismiss that verse as him referencing some archaic practice of uh, worshiping little handmade trinkets. It applies to us today, maybe more so, because our idols are often hidden. They're more sneaky. And there is only one worthy of our worship. And I don't just mean when we stand here and collectively sing. I mean, what do we give ourselves to? What do we give our time, talent, and treasure to? What is it that drives us? What are our passions ignited by most? Is it by King Jesus and his gospel? Is it by kingdom work? Is it by obeying him? Are these the things that ignite our passions? Are these the things that influence our decisions or are there other things are there other things that have more sway may we be known as people 
that, that are constantly crushing our idols and lifting up King Jesus to the place he belongs. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for this beautiful assurance. We thank you that John, inspired by your Holy Spirit, that he, that he knew we would need we would need that assurance. We would need that reminder. He knew that we would struggle often with the lies of the enemy that would cause us, because of our failings, because we do sin, because we do fall short, it would cause us to question whether or not we are loved by you or that we are deserving of your grace. But God, I thank you for the repeated assurance throughout your word that if we trust you by faith, if we put our faith in the finished work of Christ, if we take our eyes off of what we've done or not done and we put our eyes on what Jesus has done and accomplished, that we can have eternity with you, that we can be saved from our sins, that we can be rescued from slavery, set free to serve you and have the joy that comes with it. We thank you for this today. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to live a mundane life chained to our idols, dragging them around, trying to find some flicker of happiness in their deadness. But thank you, God, that we get to join you in life. We get to join you in the mission, more important than any other mission that's ever been undertaken by anyone ever. And that's the mission of spreading your gospel, letting people know they need not be slaves, but they can be free. Thank you for allowing us, with all of our frailties and failings, to be a part of that I don't, it does not seem that I should be allowed to, God, but I thank you that you seem fit to make it that way. You've anointed every single one of us to go into our spheres of influence and to share this beautiful gospel. God, may we be impassioned by nothing more than that. May we be excited about serving you. May we be excited about serving others. And may this unnatural excitement be a beacon of light to those that are chained to selfishness and the idols that rule them. Lord, we don't want to be prisoners. We want to be free to serve you and love you. Thank you for the grace and power to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.